Welcome back. Well, today I want to discuss a personal struggle I've been working through. And I've been framing it as finding my posture to humanity. And then I'll use this personal struggle as an opportunity to provide some skillful reflections to work with anger, fear, and distrust. So I've never really thought of myself as naive. I was physically and emotionally abused for most of my childhood by an older neighbor who displayed some truly creative cruelty. I was sexually abused by two teenage girls from about 8 to 10. My family was a shelter home for abused, abandoned, and neglected children. So I got a sad window into some hard truths about our neighbors and communities. I've seen the depressing reality for young women and girls in the red light districts of Thailand. I've been pushed into an unwanted coke deal in Peru by an older teen who had been dragged into gang life. I've smoked a joint with a homeless street artist in Mexico on the rooftop of an abandoned restaurant. I've spent nights on the streets with the homeless people of Salt Lake City, getting to know their traumas and life stories. I've sat and worked with dozens of people who have experienced their own form of trauma and abuse. I've seen ugly in its many forms, but it's only been in the last few years that I've really gotten close to what I will call bad actors, those who on the surface appear to be incredibly fun, loving, vibrant, and sometimes even generous people, but who are in reality dangerously manipulative and often emotionally and physically abusive, most particularly to the people closest to them. Now, let me first say that I'm hesitant to use the term bad actors because, at bottom, I don't believe any human or creature is fundamentally bad. More often, I think harmful behaviors stem from bad ideas. People have harmful operating systems running, like the belief we should mutilate little boys' and girls' genitals because Yahweh said so, or to become a martyr for Allah because he promises you virgins in heaven for your noble sacrifice. Again, I believe bad more often stems from the code we have running, our conditioning, our dogma. Not because we're inherently bad. Another reason I'm hesitant to use bad actor is because very often, if we look into the depths of these bad actors, we'll very likely find traumas scarred deeply into them. Scars that often reach back for generations. We'll see that their childhood, that their sense of safety and freedom, their sense of worth, their joy and innocence, was stripped from them early in life. We'll discover that their foundational neurological pathways were shaped by violence committed on them. And so we'll see that that trauma continues to live and move through them. With this said, though, I've learned a lot from my mistakes. I've been fooled too many times in recent years. I've unwittingly put my children at risk carelessly letting untrustworthy people stay in my home. 
I've armed bad actors with a spiritual language they can use to manipulate others. I've stood up to bad behavior, protected the innocent, been gaslighted by all of it, and helplessly watched as enablers protected the abuser and cowards turned their heads in the name of peace. My heart has been flooded with sorrow and a deep distrust. Today I'd like to recount only the most recent encounter with a bad actor, one that has filled me with a renewed anger, fear, and potent distrust of people. On the Sunday before Thanksgiving, my dad revealed to me that my grandpa had raped and for 30 years sexually abused his oldest daughter, my Aunt Julie. It appears that Julie tried to bring this to her family in her 30s, in the 1980s, in a one-off family therapy session, where she revealed not the full extent of the abuse, but that my grandpa had fondled her breast several times. Julie, who's the oldest of 10 siblings, and who, again, was in her 30s at the time, said that my grandpa quickly manipulated the therapy session and turned much of the anger and frustration that had evolved in that family toward my grandma, who didn't really have much of a relationship with any of her kids. In any case, from this point on, Julie's revelation faded into the background. For 40 more years, Julie suffered her traumas in isolation, without the love and support, not so much a word from her mother or siblings. It wasn't until the spring of this year, 2023, when all the siblings gathered for a short vacation, that one of them asked her about it, and so for the first time, she could voice the full extent of the abuse. Sadly, though, even after my aunt shared this information with her siblings in the spring, essentially none of them decided to share the truth with their adult children, many of whom could have been victims themselves. It wasn't until a couple weeks before Thanksgiving that another aunt of mine, an in-law, released a letter that tactfully and compassionately exposed my grandpa's behaviors, thankfully forcing the conversation into our homes by stating that this knowledge will no longer be private. The catalyst of this letter was my cousin Michaela, Julie's youngest daughter. Michaela and her siblings having known the truth about my grandpa for many years, were understandably tired of the Driggs family's silence and their praiseful narrative of my grandpa. So, with great courage, Michaela and one of her sisters, with the support of my aunt to draft the letter, exposed that my grandpa not only abused Julie, but also one of Julie's older daughters, my cousin, who I'll leave unnamed. Anyway, this news has caused the trauma from my own sexual abuse to resurface. I've been flooded with a renewed anger, fear, sadness, and a deep, deep distrust. So, before I move on to talk about how I've been working through this larger problem of what posture to take to this sometimes cruel and scary world, how to relate to bad actors, let me just say that I plan to release a few more podcasts on the topic of sexual abuse. I want to borrow some courage from my cousins and bring some light to the hard truth 
of sexual abuse in our homes and communities. First, I think I'll have a conversation with River to discuss our personal experience of the unfolding of this news, the general reactions of my family, the emotions it sparked in us, and the impact our own personal trauma bears on the situation. I'd also like to discuss with her the role of enablers and peacemakers, the harm of silence, and maybe more generally the common themes that victims face, thoughts of impurity and unworthiness, and the attending emotions of shame, guilt, and disgust. Next, I think River and I will record a conversation with our kids, just to provide parents with a model to approach their own kids about sexual abuse. We'll stress the importance of naming body parts and using plain language to describe rape, inappropriate touching, and other sexual abuse. We'll talk about the inappropriate use of secrets and threats by perpetrators, autonomy over our own bodies, the right to say no, the importance of listening to our bodies when we don't feel safe, even if there's no real rational explanation, a parent's duty to listen and respond appropriately to a child when the child voices these fears, the natural curiosity for children to be interested in not only their own bodies, but also the bodies of others, the freedom and safety to express these curiosities to their parents without judgment, safe and appropriate ways to explore these curiosities, along with other topics. And finally, I already have on the calendar for January a conversation with an incredible therapist who's dealt with sexual abuse for decades. So, in addition to the topics we had planned on discussing, I'll also get her professional perspective to see what light she can shine on the topic to help me, my family, and anyone else dealing with sexual abuse move towards safety, healing, and transformation. Now, one last thing before we examine my posture to the world. Though I feel I've been flooded with anger, fear, and distrust since I found out about my grandpa, I just want to say that I've also found immense beauty in all this pain. I've had the opportunity to connect with my Aunt Julie, who's displayed so much love, compassion, and wisdom. I've been able to renew and strengthen my trust in River, my partner, to find an immense love and gratitude for her. I've been able to hold my children with a profound new level of appreciation, care, and tenderness. And I've been able to hold myself, too, with a new kind of compassion. A compassion I don't think would have been possible if this news had not resurfaced my old traumas and allowed me to see them and hold them from the lens of a parent. Seeing my kids and then seeing myself at their age losing my sense of trust and safety has cracked my heart wide open. Okay, well, let's move on now to explore how I've been approaching my posture to the world. 
How can those of us who've lost our trust in humanity move forward on the spiritual path? How can we live with open hearts and at the same time protect ourselves and our loved ones from those who would do us harm? As I said, I've been struggling with this question for a few years now. The problem first arose when I was introduced with full disclosure to a so-called bad actor. At the time, to keep myself and those close to me safe, I was encouraged to read up on the literature surrounding sexual, physical, and emotional abuse and all the manipulation surrounding it. I was also encouraged to read up on narcissistic personality disorder, bipolar disorder, and antisocial personality disorder otherwise known as sociopathy. And sadly, as I read through the literature, I recognized several people in my life who displayed some of the patterns I was learning about. I became aware of the many ways they manipulate the people around them. And as I said earlier, even after reading the literature, I've still been fooled too many times in the past few years. So, I've been tightening up my circle. I've sharpened up how I interact with certain people. I've recalibrated and tuned up my bullshit detector. I'm learning how to skillfully apply and enforce boundaries. Like I said, I'm figuring out my posture to the world. It's been a long road, but I feel like I'm finally starting to find a posture that is open, relaxed, and receptive. But at the same time, a posture with a strong back one that's resilient and enduring. Instead of reacting, I'm getting better at simply recognizing the anger, fear, and distrust when they arise, welcoming them into awareness's loving embrace, holding them, listening to them, having compassion for them, trying to understand them, and then, and only then, responding to a person or situation if necessary. Now, of course, staying mindful and responding with wisdom isn't always easy. When I'm more or less mindful, as Joseph Goldstein calls it, aware but not fully open and receptive, subtly identified, I often try to distract myself from these hard emotions or difficult conversations by turning to a movie or endless productivity or maybe by sleeping more, sleeping in, unwilling to meet the day. That is, I succumb to restlessness and sloth and torpor. Thankfully, though, the watcher on the wall, the shield that guards the realms of men, mindfulness, eventually blows the horn to alarm me that Mara has penetrated the walls. And again, Mara is just the personification of delusion in Buddhism. If the mindfulness still isn't strong enough, though, to dispel Mara's magic, if I keep running from or getting caught in the emotion and all the thoughts that surround it, I'll sometimes seek the wisdom of reflection just to help reinforce and support the mindfulness, to renew its strength. And these reflections that I want to explore today are what the Buddha called the three marks of being. It's selfless, interconnected, ever-changing, and thus unsatisfying nature. Now, 
though each of these reflections are really windows into the same insight, which is both the goal and the path of spiritual practice, we can investigate and apply more skillfully certain consequences or dimensions of these marks of being to help cut through the Gordian knot of self-illusion and once again open our hearts and minds. For example, when anger or indignation arises, when I feel that my innate sense of justice has been violated and I feel the strong impulse to act out of this anger, I'll often reflect on karma, the law of causality and conditions. I'll reflect on the lawful and interconnected nature of being. I can reflect on this person who's committed the injustice and realize in a flash that if I had this person's genes and grew up under this person's circumstances, I would be this person. I would have spoken and acted just as they have. The late Ram Dass, psychologist and spiritual teacher, used to say that we ought to treat people more like trees. When you go out into the woods, he said, you see all these different kinds of trees. And some of them are bent, and some of them are straight, and some of them are evergreens, and some of them are whatever. And you look at the tree, and you allow it. You see why it is the way it is. You sort of understand that it didn't get enough light, and so it turned that way. And you don't get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You appreciate the tree. As Ram Dass pointed out, we're all like trees. And some of us simply didn't receive enough light. And so we ended up bending this way or that, causing harm. But just as we don't damn the tree, we need not damn the human. When we put on our love goggles, we can see that there's no soul, there's no self, no isolated and independent force that gave this person the agency to do what he did. An agency that is removed from the rest of the world and its forces and laws that govern it. Just as the tree is made of soil, water, and air, inextricably linked to the earth and her seasons, her relation to the sun and moon, all governed by universal laws, well, so too is this person. He is made up entirely of non-person parts, each interdependent on the rest, all bound by universal forces and laws. Sometimes this reflection on the delusion of free will makes people feel uncomfortable. This is understandable. So much of our identity, our sense of self, our sense of purpose, is caught up in our volition. And to be stripped of this idea, deluded as it may be, can throw many of us either into an existential crisis or a nihilistic stupor. But this is to miss the deeper insight that you are so much more than this small ego-based part. You contain it, but at the same time, transcend it. 
And again, this isn't something to take on faith. It's an invitation for you to look directly for yourself. Now, another flavor of this issue often comes in the question, so what? Why is this important or useful? And some even go so far to claim that it's harmful. If this is true, they say, then nothing anyone does matters since there's no responsibility. If I don't have free will, then why does it matter if I lie, cheat, steal, or kill? Well, first of all, our intentions still matter. It's important to know whether I intended to hit you or whether it was just an accident. When we know that someone carries ill intent to harm, we need to do what's necessary to protect ourselves and the innocent. Just consider your posture or attitude towards a tornado that goes ripping through a city, destroying homes and killing people. Do you get angry at the tornado? Do you blame it? No. Now, of course, as the philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris has pointed out, if we could put a hurricane in prison to prevent it from causing harm, we would. But we wouldn't do it with anger or with the intention to punish the hurricane. No, we understand that entirely impersonal causes and conditions came together to bring about the hurricane. Rather than curse it, then, we can learn as much as we can about the causes and conditions and do what we can to create safety measures, warning systems, more stable structures, and other forms of protection. Now consider if we carry the same attitude and understanding into our criminal and justice systems. Rather than blame people and punish them, we could learn more about the causes and conditions that bring about criminal behavior and work towards solutions that skillfully and compassionately protect all of us. We would move from punitive to rehabilitative and restorative systems. And of course, we can even take this understanding or this reflection of the delusion of free will into our homes. Rather than punish our kids for their behaviors or pin characteristics to them, we can work toward understanding all the causes and conditions at play so that we can correct them with compassion and bring more peace into the home. In dealing with sexual abuse, I can still do everything I possibly can to protect my children, but I can do so not out of hatred, but out of love. This reflection on the delusion of agency, if you're honest with yourself, allows us to let go of so much needless suffering. When we recognize directly, when we truly understand that everyone and everything is interconnected, that we all abide by lawful and universal forces, then much of our anger, jealousy, blame, hatred, and frustration will dissipate naturally.
It won't make sense anymore. Again, don't take my word for it. Be honest and investigate this directly for yourself. Okay, well, let's move on to fear. When wrestling with fear, there's a few reflections that seem to help me, and you'll just have to play around with them yourself to see which one works for you. First, you can reflect on the truth of impermanence, investigating directly the ever-changing nature of experience, until you find that there's no one there who is afraid. There's no stable, unchanging entity called self. There's just this ever-changing pattern of energy in your chest and in your head, and everything is fading as quickly as it's coming into being. If you can tune in to this direct understanding of change, it allows awareness to settle back into the effortless flow of experience. There's a peace and an ease that welcomes the feelings and the sensations that we call fear. Another reflection you can make is to emphasize the emptiness aspect of ultimate reality, the knowing aspect. You can investigate awareness directly, the deathless, the unborn and unformed, the timeless, the no-thing that doesn't arise or disappear, but simply is, that simply knows. You can abide here in the middleness, in equanimity, in peace. What I've found most useful, however, when in the grip of fear, is to reflect on meta or loving kindness, the simple wish that I, that you, that all beings, that all experience be at ease, that all be at peace, that all be happy, safe, and secure. There's a story about a group of monks who were trying to meditate in the forest, but weren't able to focus because they were afraid. The forest was full, not only of dangerous creatures like tigers and snakes, but many of the outcasts and outlaws of society also lived in there. So, to find inner peace, the Buddha suggested that the monks reflect on the following, which I've paraphrased and updated in part. But as you listen to and receive the Buddha's reflection, the Buddha's words, I invite you to really embody the intention behind the words. May you be skilled in goodness. May you be able, honest, and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble, modest, and simple in living. May you remain composed and calm. 
not proud and demanding in nature. May you do nothing the wise would reprove. May you wish in gladness and in safety that all beings be at ease, that they be happy, safe, and secure, whatever living creatures there be, without exception, strong or weak, omitting none, the short, tall, big and small, whether seen or unseen, living near or far, born or unborn, may all beings be happy. May none deceive or despise another. May none through anger or aversion, through hatred or resentment, wish harm on another being. As a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart may you cherish all beings, radiating goodwill and kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, may you sustain this recollection. With virtue, vision, and purity of heart, holding no longer to selfish or crooked views, being released from all sensual desires, may you be free from suffering. May you truly be at peace. Okay, well, finally, with the last emotion we'll explore today, distrust. I just want to start by saying that this one has been extremely difficult for me. I've felt intensely guarded. It's really impaired my ability to open to the world, to expose my precious, tender, and vulnerable heart which is necessary to establish deep and meaningful relationships. Honestly, I'd love to get someone on the podcast who's deeply familiar with this emotion and has learned to navigate it with wisdom. But until then, what seems to have helped me is to reflect on my own sila, my own goodwill, to reestablish and connect with the intention to commit no harm. As my humble and noble friend Logan asked me when I expressed all the distrust I've been facing, do you trust yourself? Yes, I replied. Good, he said. Stick with that. With others, start by giving them only small tasks to build your trust. If they break it, then there won't be too much harm done. If they show up, if they take responsibility, if they demonstrate trust, then give them a little more. But keep who and what you value close. It'll never hurt to stay skeptical and awake. There's room to carry both optimism for people 
and at the same time to understand that many of us have been hurt. We're trees who haven't received enough light. Anyway, thank you for listening. May you be safe, secure, and hopeful. May you truly be at peace. Until next time.